consultant and coach with more than 25 years of professional speaking experience, working primarily with leaders, presidents, CEOs, and senior level execs. Leaders who want to influence and inspire their audience. He's the author of the international bestseller, Real Leaders Don't Do PowerPoint, which provides the title of his speech here today. Ladies and gentlemen, for our closing keynote address, please welcome Chris Witt. It was 1974. I had just graduated from college and I was halfway through a internship, a church volunteer year program that had sent me to teach high school in the inner city, the slum, of Memphis, Tennessee. Now Memphis is the home of Elvis Presley, but it was also the place of a devastating racial riot a number of years earlier. I was living in the basement of St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church. It was on a little rise surrounded by rubble that had been left over. It was like a, a burnt out war zone after these riots. Across the street was Beale Street Baptist Church, which is where Martin Luther King preached when he was in town. And down the ways a little near the Mississippi River was uh, the Lorraine Motel and the balcony on which he was standing when he was assassinated. In January of that year, I heard about a church service at Beale Street Baptist Church. It was on Martin Luther King's birthday, five years after his assassination. I entered the church and it was already packed, but I got led into one of the pews and wedged tightly into a side pew. It was only then when I looked around that I realized I was the only white person in this entire church. Now I'm not proud to admit this, but I had grown up in a lily white suburb of Los Angeles and I had gone to school at a lily white university and I felt more than a little out of place in this church. Then the service began and I got even more anxious because it soon became clear that not only was I the only white person in a church of blacks, I was the only Roman Catholic in a church of Baptists. <laughs> we Roman Catholics had just earlier switched from Latin to English and the most you could say about our services is that they were sedate. The one word you would not think of applying to this service in Beale Street Baptist Church was sedate. The choir entered from the rear and processed in in their beautiful blue satin gowns, stepping and clapping and singing as they entered. And the entire congregation began swaying with them, clapping and singing right along. If I could have slid out unnoticed, I would have. But for obvious reasons, I would have been noticed. So I stayed there. Then the preacher took the, the pulpit and my anxiety and my fears just melted away. Have you ever experienced fine black preaching? I don't, who has? I don't know if it's different here than in the United States, but it is more like poetry than prose with rhythm and rhyme and repetition. It starts like a train pulling out of a station, slow, and steady until it gradually picks up pace until it hits its destination at full throttle. And the best thing about it is a thing called call and response. 
the preacher lays down a line and he waits for the, it's kind of like an invitation for the, uh, for the congregation to sort of throw something back at him. It might be something as simple as amen, or yes, the preacher, or say it again, or help him, Lord. From the outside, it would look like watching a tennis match, this back and forth. But when you're in the middle of it, it's more like being part of a jazz ensemble. I won't go into the entire sermon, although I can, I can remember an amazing amount of it. He kept comparing Brother Moses with Brother, Abraham, uh, Brother Martin. It was mesmerizing. When, when he finished, I was electrified, and the entire congregation stood up in this praise. Finally, when it settled down, another man sp stood up. He was big and bold and a rich coffee brown. He was dressed in black and leather and silver. He commanded us all to rise. We all rose. And he said, repeat after me. I am black. I am beautiful. And the entire <laughs> congregation is going, I am black. I am beautiful. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. And there I was. Lily white, fool that I am, joining in with everybody else. <laughs> it was then, or, or, or maybe later when I reflected on it, that I realized the power of the spoken word. The power to break down walls that divide us, to open our eyes to see reality in a new way, to inflame our hearts to, to feel and to value and to want to act in a different way. And I said then, I want to do that. So in those intervening 38 years I have studied, I've been trained, and I've practiced the art of both speaking and helping other people speak. And what I'd like to share with you today is my reflections on the power of the spoken word and then how we as both spe speakers and speech writers can tap into that power. So first of all, what it is and then how we can tap into it. That power that I'm talking about isn't so much the power to control or to coerce or to compel an audience. It's the power to create change. I believe that every good speech, every speech worth its name, creates change in the audience. Sure, we can confirm people in their beliefs and in their behavior we can tell them what you're doing and how you're thinking and how you're believing is perfectly good. Just keep it up. And they'll love us for it. They really would. How we'll feel about ourselves and our profession is another question entirely. I believe the only reason it's worth giving a speech is that we want to change people. We want to change how they think about things, how they feel about things, but primarily how they act. When I begin my preparation for a speech, I always ask, what do I want the audience to do as a result of the speech? And then why would they want to do it? It's action that I'm trying to get people to. So action. I used to say that every speech needs to be built around one and only one uh, idea, but it's got to be a big idea. I think I got that from Peggy Noonan, uh, one of Ronald Reagan's speechwriters. I now, I think, uh, Martin, you and Martha were talking about uh, one proposition. Mine is one idea. 
but it's got to be a big idea. But I don't use big idea anymore because some big ideas don't take you anywhere. I now use a term that I learned as a surfer. Southern, I'm Southern California surfer boy. Surfers have as many words to describe uh, waves as Eskimos have to describe snow. So we can describe the, the size of a wave. You know, it can be heavy, it can be hugangous, or it can be monster. You can talk about the, si the shape of a wave. It can be cube, uh, curled or tubed. It can be walled off or it can be blown out. You can talk about the condition of riding a wave. It can be uh, mint or it can be perf, as in perfect, or awesome, dude. <laughs> but the, the terms I like most, and the ones that I apply to speech writing, are mushy and juicy. Mush, mush, uh, porridge, oatmeal, mush. A wave that is mushy has no life and vitality to it. It can be huge, stomping wave. But you try to get in it, and it just washes right on by you. It's limp. It's like a limp handshake. You say it's got mush. It's mush. It's mushy. Or it can just pick you up and hurl you forward. That's a juicy wave. That's what I want for the idea behind a speech. And I, a, a speech has power when the idea behind it, not because of its size or its shape or its scope, because of its power to propel. So does this speech, does the idea behind this have the power to move people forward? So what do I want people to do and how do I get them to do it? So the second question is always, why would they want to do? Why would they want to go where I want to take them? Why, what's in it for them? I, I, have, I have five different ways of asking that question. So if, if that, you know, if you say, what, why would they want to do it? And you're really stumped, there's, there's five other questions you can ask. How would doing what I want you to do help you solve a problem of yours, achieve a goal that you want to achieve, realize a dream of yours, safeguard a commitment, a person, a community, a value that you treasure, or honest, honor a promise or a commitment. If we will not do one of those things, I guarantee you, however much I want you to do it, you're not going to do it. So those again are, how's it going to solve a problem for you? How's it going to help you achieve a goal? How's it going to help you realize a dream? How's it going to help you safeguard a, a, a commitment, a community, a people, a value that you, you treasure? How is it going to help you honor a promise or a commitment? Okay. That should in, uh, finish this whole part about the power of uh, uh, the spoken word, but I, unfortunately I've got another part to it. And it's this, no matter how much juice we put into our speech, what really is important is also what they make of it. It's not just what we say, however well we craft it, it's what they hear of it. How many of you are speakers yourself? How many of you ever get up and give speeches? Okay, then you'll bear me out. If you give speeches often enough, unless you really bomb, people will come up afterwards and say, that was nice. <laughs> right? And you say, oh, thank you. That's all. Do not ask and oh, thank you. But every so often, someone will come up and say, oh, 
that wowed me. That was terrific. That just blew me away. And if you want to be humbled, only if you want to be humbled, ask this question. What is it about what I said that moved you? What did you hear? Brace yourself, because I guarantee you what they tell you will make you ask yourself, were you even in the same room with me? <laughs> right? They will pick out one part of what you said, and they will run with it in their own direction. And you know, people have a mind and a will of their own. And that's actually a good thing, if we can trust them. We provide the juice, and we kind of aim them in the direction we want them to go, but we really ultimately have to trust that they will go where they need to go. A friend of mine applied to the Juilliard School of Music. He was a very fine uh, celloist. And he got turned down. So he spoke to the person who he had auditioned with and who had interviewed him of why he got turned down. And, and she told him this. She said, Jack, you're a wonderful musician. You're very, very fine. But you'll never be a true artist because you're not content to play the music. You insist on crawling into people's ears and telling them how to experience it. As speakers, what we have to do is be content to speak our truth and let people hear it as they will and trust that that's a good thing. If we are good at our art of, of crafting a speech and saying exactly what we want and saying it with power, we are craftsmen. If we can go beyond that and create something that gets into people's ears and into their souls and makes them resonate with it and, and turns them into something beyond our imagining, we become something more than craftsmen, we're artists. The power of the spoken word isn't just in the exchange of ideas, it's in this interchange that we call a speech. So if that's what the power of spoken word is, the question is, how do we tap into it? And I've got two things that I'd like to go into for that. I'd like to go into many more, but I, I, in the time we have, only two. One is wisdom. Uh, this sounds odd. I know you don't hear this much. It's going to make me sound like the old fuddy-duddy that I am. But I believe what we need from leaders is their wisdom. If you go back and read uh, Plato, what is it, Gorgias, and if you read uh, Cicero's De Oratore, they both agree that oratory or rhetoric, divorced from philosophy, the love of wisdom, is not only empty and vain, it's dangerous. Christians talk about Hitler was a prime example of that. Rhetoric and oratory at its best totally devoid of wisdom. It's silly. I know I work with some of the most uh, practical, pragmatic. I, I work with engineers, construction workers, IT, you know, information technology, information systems. These people have doctorates in technical subjects I didn't even know existed. And I tell them that I'm going to be looking for the wisdom in this that they can share with it. And you would think they would, would slam the door in my face, and it's as if they start purring, because no one's ever asked it of them. In the old Greek philosophy, there would be three uh, components of wisdom that I think we as, as uh, speech writers need to pull out of people. 
One is just simple understanding. What is it? What's it mean? So we've got all these technical people. That's one of the problems with PowerPoint is people can throw up tons of stuff on PowerPoint and, and assume that we put it together as if it means something. So the first question is always, what does all of this stuff that I'm talking about mean? If I'm talking about the economy, look at all this data I have. Look at all these facts and figures. What's it mean? How do I make the connections? That's, that's part of, of that, is making connections for people, taking all this disparate stuff, grouping it in the right groups, and then connecting it. So what's it mean? That's number one, understanding. The second component of wisdom would be right judgment. What's, this, what's the worth of it? What's the impact of it? Is this an emergency or is this just a crisis du jour? That yes, it too will pass. Is this something we should drop everything and attend to? Or is this something that we need to get to in our own good time? What's, what's it worth? What's its impact? That's judgment. And then the third thing is prudence, an old, uh, really old-fashioned word, prudence, which is just knowing what to do. What do we do with this? Now that we've understood it, now that we've rightly assessed its, its impact, what are we to do with this? What's the step forward? What next? Those questions are always what I want to know in a speech, a what, why, and how speech. What, why, and how? What is it? Why should I act on it? How am I going to do it? What, why, and how? There's a story told of uh, President Kennedy during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. So, if you weren't around, uh, the Soviet Union was putting missiles on Cuba. The United States was getting all upset, of course, ignoring the fact that we had missiles in uh, Turkey, threatening the Soviet Union, but that's another matter. Uh, and his advisors were locked in council with them. Some were, they were divided. Some were uh, thinking all-out attack on Cuba, risking all-out war with the Soviet Union. Others were counseling a softer approach of simply putting an embargo around uh, Cuba. Kennedy could not make up his mind, so he sent his top advisor, Ted Sorensen, out of the room, who was also a speechwriter, and asked him to write two different letters, both to Nikita Khrushchev. One telling him why they were attacking Cuba, one telling him why they were putting an embargo around the uh, island. A little bit later, Sorensen came back into the room and said, I, I, I can't complete these letters. There's uh, something I need to know. And he read off a list of questions. That started them thinking again about their whole things, and finally Kennedy came to his conclusion of what to do. I think as speechwriters, we do an injustice if all we do are scribes, if all we do is listen to what the, the, the speakers want to do, write, uh, want to say, and write it down in a, a better form. I think we have to probe them for the wisdom, and we have to wisely do that because sometimes they don't be like being pushed. But we have to ask them questions to, to get them to think more deeply about what they want to say. And sometimes just by the questions we ask, we, we, we stir up something more and get them to come to a wiser place. By the way, when Sorensen wrote his book, he titled it not speechwriter, but counselor. 
that's what I think we need to do, is we need to be a wise counselor to coax out the wisdom of the people we work with. Stories is my second thing. You may know, by the way, that I've been telling stories, that I'm just a firm believer in the need to tell stories in a speech. Now, maybe it's different from you. you. A lot of you work with politicians and diplomats. I don't know what it's like to do that. I work with business leaders. I will not let one of my clients get out there and give a speech without telling at least one story. I just, I, it, it, it's too painful. I can't do it. So the question is, uh, how do you get them to tell stories? Have any of you had trouble doing that? You know, you, you know they've got a story in them, but how do, you, how do you get it out of them? Now, again, what kind of stories you want leaders to tell? Well, that's, the, that's a matter for a whole different speech. I don't have time for that. But I just am a believer with Howard Gardner that, that stories are the most potent weapon in a leader's arsenal. So we've got to tell stories. And we've got to coax it out of them. Uh, in the Navajo tradition, the Navajo Indians have, uh, uh, the Navajo Nation is is huge swath of land in the American Southwest. It's part of Nevada, Utah, uh, New Mexico. It's huge territory. The Navajo are famous for their pottery dolls. And one of their, fam their most recognizable one is called the Storyteller. And it's either a man or a woman seated. And you can recognize the Storyteller by two attributes. One, mouth is open. But the other is it's, it's surrounded by smaller figurines. These are the listeners. That's what I think our role sometimes is to be the listeners to, to, to say to the leaders, tell me a story. And here's my technique to get them uh, to tell me stories because I start slow. Because you just can't tell them, tell me a story because they freeze up. I don't tell stories, don't like telling stories. Don't, don't go there, right? So I never, use a, I never use the word story. So first of all, as I'm talking with them, I start telling them stories myself, my own stories. I can't stop it. I'm just a storyteller, so I, I tell stories. Kind of sets the, the space for it. Then somewhere along the line, as I've talked to them about the event they're going to be talking about, what they want to talk about, the main ideas of the message, what they'd like me to research, all that stuff, you know, the, the stuff you do, I turn to them and I say, can you just tell me about a person who uh, inspired you the most when you were a kid. Notice I didn't say, tell me a story about it. I say, tell me about someone who inspired you the most when you were a kid. And then tell me what that person did. Give, give me an example of what that person did that, that meant so much to you. And then can you, can you sum up what that person meant to you? And that, what, what, what was your takeaway? What was your lesson you learned from that person? So what I've taught them to do is tell me a story. Tell me about someone and tell me about an action that revealed something about them and then the moral to it. So everyone likes telling. Everyone has someone that they admired growing up, so they love telling you about it. Easy to do. Then I go to the next one and I say, this is a little bit harder, so I, tell, I say, Tell me about a turning point in your life. Tell me about a place you got in your life where you had to make a decision, a major decision, to go one way or another. What was that like? What happened? What did you do? And what did you learn from it? Again, notice I never said tell me a story about, I just tell me about. Then I say, Tell me about your uh, greatest success. 
what's the, what's, what's the thing you feel proudest about? And what did you learn about it? And by this time, people are kind of on a roll. And if I'm feeling really, 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 really courageous, and if I've built up some trust with the person, I ask, tell me about your most painful loss or failure. Everyone I've ever asked to do that has done it. Now, it may not be their most painful loss or failure, but it is a loss or failure they tell me about. And it's, it's just like they sink to this different place in relating to me and in talking to me. And then I'll go into, somewhere along the line, I may have heard a story I can use in this, but then, I, then they're free for me to say, okay, I'd like to incorporate a story into this to give it some, some meat and flesh. Can we talk about? And I've guided from what I know their message is. Can you tell me about something over here? And the juices are just flowing, and it's so easy. So those are, 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 are two of the things I believe that we do as uh, speech writers to be able to tap into that power of the spoken word is, is to call upon people's wisdom to ask them to be wise with us, to dare them to be wise, and then to ask them to tell stories. You know, we talk a lot about... Uh, the fear of speaking. I don't know how many times you get people talking about, how do I get over this nervousness? And, and I distinguish between nervousness and fear. Nervousness, you know, you, there are things you can do about to tame your nerves, right? We've got all those things, breathing, all that kind of stuff. But then there's the fear of public speaking, and I think you should always be afraid when you're giving a speech. It's the sign you're doing something right, because you're risking putting yourself on the line. You're saying, in effect, hey, look at me. Come out here and play. I believe that's what a speech is, that I make myself vulnerable enough that I create a space, a safe place. And what I'm really saying is, can you come out and play? You want to come out and play? You know, and here's our, here's our playground right here. And it's the playground of the imagination and the memory and the emotions that then moves us to action. You kind of stir things up so that you move people to act. Sometimes I fear that prepared speeches are an endangered species, teetering on the brink of extinction, being threatened by PowerPoint presentations, by leaders getting up with a, a list of talking points and ad-libbing it. But then I remember that speech in Beale Street Baptist Church and so many other speeches that I've heard over the years that I've had the privilege of hearing over the years. And I, I do not lose heart. I do not despair. I do not abandon hope. Because I know that the power of the, spe the spoken word is like a, a, a smoldering ember. It's always there. It's just waiting for someone, maybe you, maybe me, to blow on it gently and to fan it into flames. Because this, this world of ours needs all of the light, all of the warmth, all of the energy that our words, our wisdom, and our stories can spark.
thank you for your attention. speech I ever heard was by President Clinton, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the flesh, and I could hear <coughs> religious tones there. Um, what is it, uh, other than what you've right. said already, that is, uh, do they do, do they structure their talks in particular ways? Are there, are there kind of rhetorical tricks that they're using? Yes, yes, yes. Um, first of all, it's an oral tradition. So it's much like the Irish tradition that we'd be much more used to both song and celebration of words. So it's, it's got much more of that. It's participation, and we expect... I mean, they go to uh, a white service. Uh, you know, the black Baptists would go to a white service and think, these people are dead, the, you know, icicles. They expect that participation, and, and it, they just they go primed for it. So they're... This is one of the things we talk about. We talk about what speakers owe an audience. You know, we've got to be prepared. We've got to do this. What we don't focus so much on is what the audience owes the speaker. You know, I can't, you can only go in and do so much giving. You need the audience to, to play. So I think in the, 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 the Baptist tradition, there is that the audience is conditioned to, to join in and participate. And they egg you on. So I, I preached to a, a Baptist uh, congregation once, and you know I throw out something, and the first time they answer back with, "That's right," <laughs> you're kind of, oh, well, and then you you kind of challenge, and you say, "Well, you like that," and you you just, yeah, and then they throw it back, and it's 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 really quite bracing. I mean, it, it is. It's that uh, there is that. Tell us more, Chris. <laughs> yeah, tell us more. Yeah, um, there is that. Uh, Tradition, and this is a long tradition in interpreting scripture of by analogy. So, the, so uh, on this story, what what the preacher did is he paralleled uh, Moses being called by God to go to the leaders of the people to say, "I have seen the oppression of my people. Let my people go." And he compared that to. Uh, Martin Luther King being sent to the, peop- to the leaders of America saying the same message. And he just kept going back and forth between Moses and Abraham. And just as Moses had been taken up on the mountainside and been given a vision of the Holy Land but not allowed to cross over into it, so uh, <coughs> Martin Luther King had been given a vision of freedom and justice but had been killed before he'd been able to enter over into that land. It was just, I mean, but again, it was, and it's, it's that repetition. So he'd go back and forth and back and forth. I don't think we know how much repetition and that ebb and flow um, is is valuable for for speaking. And that I, I would love to study it more. If if I were going to do more, that's that's where I'd go. One last question um, yeah. from you. <laughs> 
my, I'm going to pose my question a bit absurd, because it has a function. Um, have you seen a Full Metal Jacket by Sandy Kubrick, mm. the drill instructor? No. There's this drill instructor who's in uh, the Marine Corps, and he breaks these people down, he's a terrible guy. Um, now, let's imagine that uh, he's your client, and you would have to go to him and uh, subtract stories from him. Uh, he's a terrible guy, pattern-like. How would you go about it? And it doesn't relate to mine. Okay. Thank you. I'm, I put you in a plant because I forgot a story that I was going to tell, and that, that leads right into it. So, <laughs> did you have my speech and you say, oh, you forgot that part? I, I work with government contractors who make bids on huge government contracts. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars contracts, right? They're often for the military. And this one I was working on, um, they had this virtual training center where they, put, they took lessons from Afghanistan and they uh, adapted it. I didn't know because it was secret, so I, I couldn't even go in there. But they adapted it so the, the soldiers, before they went to Afghanistan, would go into here, fight the fights, so they'd be trained how to do it before they went over there. So that's the background of it. They had been doing this contract for five years and been very successful. They were making their presentation, so I was rehearsing the, the, the main person. And the main person was a retired army colonel who had been the commander of tanks. And if you wanted to see a guy <laughs> just kind of walk in, this is, you know, uh, John Wayne looked like a wimp by comparison, right? <laughs> so this guy, I mean, ramrod up here, and he just looked, and, I, and he gave the talk, and it was this, of course, PowerPoint, so he's just saying, here's this, and here's this reason. Now, you don't tell a client you're boring as hell, right? At least I don't. I want to get paid. <laughs> Maybe you do. So I said, Jack, that's all good, but, you know, it's, it doesn't have any life to it. Why, why, why are you even doing this? Is it just to get the contract? And it was as if I had slapped them. And he says, I'm not doing this for the money. I'm doing this because we save American lives. And, he's, and he went over to his briefcase, and he just went through, and he, and he, he came out, and he said, here's a letter. And I mean, he's really, he's just, here's a letter. He says, this is a letter from one of the commanders that I, uh, I trained his battalion. I want to read it. And he read it, and it was basically saying, I'm writing this letter to you, Jack, because otherwise I would have been writing to a bereaved parent. Our unit was attacked today. And because of the training you gave us, we all came out alive. Thank you for saving lives. He couldn't even go on. And he said, Jack, tell that story. I, I, you push gently people. You, you trust that they've got a story in them that they want to tell. And you don't work with real problems. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but again, my, my belief is if I can get it out of my, my people, you can get out of yours. Okay. Thanks. Okay.